Thank you for your ministry and music this morning. It was particularly good for my soul. Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23 is the extended text of our reading. We actually this morning will be considering 13 to 15. Matthew 2, 13 to 23. And when they, the wise men, were be departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah, Jeremy the prophet, saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he, Joseph, was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Father, we are excited to begin this extended section of prophecy that helps us not only to correctly identify Jesus as the Christ, but helps to explain why it is that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And indeed, this congregation, represented before you visibly this morning at worship, is good evidence in answer to the question, why? For you have included us, who had no promise of inheritance as a na nation of people, no promise of ethnic expectation as set forth at first in Abraham. And yet the blessing of Abraham has been extended to us. And this morning we are indeed thankful. And we pray that this morning you would open the eyes of our understanding 
for the clarity of our own faith, the strengthening of the mind, the stabilizing of the heart, the governing of the soul, that we might think right, do right, live right, and behave, as it were, in a way that glorifies you and brings pleasure to your heart as our God. Thank you for each one that is here to hear this morning. We ask your blessing upon them. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. France, Spain, China, and Italy are four places on God's earth that are visited by over 60 million tourists a year. France, Spain, China, and Italy. We gain insight into the second chapter of Matthew by the prophetic places referenced. Geographical locations of reference with prophetic ties. Bethlehem, Egypt, Ramah, Nazareth are the four places of note on the prophetic itinerary of First Advent Jesus. Matthew records those four geographical locations in relationship to their prophetic significance here in Matthew chapter 2. Having worked with the prophecy of Micah 5.2, as is read in verse 6 of the second chapter of Matthew, and the designation of God concerning Messiah's birthplace, now we're moving on to consider three more geographical prophecies that are presented to us here in Matthew chapter 2 uh, over the next three weeks. Matthew's citing of these four geographical prophecies in the second chapter present to us a master class in hermeneutics, which is also, of course, known as Bible interpretation. The only direct fulfillment of an Old Testament messianic prophecy in this chapter is that concerning Bethlehem. And yet the sense of fulfillment that is connected to Egypt, Ramah, and Nazareth will present us, as we continue in this second chapter, with some thrilling connections to biblical history and three additional varieties of prophetic fulfillment. The second chapter not only has four important geographical locations cited in presentation of Jesus as the Christ, but it also has the record of four revelatory dreams. Having worked with the first dream, that of the wise men in this second chapter at verse 12, in which they were warned not to go home and reconnect, or to not reconnect with Herod, but to go home some other way, uh, so now we begin to work with the three revelatory dreams in chapter 2 that are given to Joseph. Verse 13, verse 19, verse 22, Joseph has a revelatory dream that directs the aspect of his life. Now, if you include the first chapter uh, along with the second chapter in your analysis of the structure of the book of Matthew then you would have to say that this is Joseph's fourth revelatory dream because he had a revelatory dream that told him, hey, you marry Mary. Remember? And now he has a revelatory dream that tells him uh, to take uh, uh, the child and his mother and go to Egypt. 
and then he has another revelatory dream that says, go back home. And then he has another revelatory dream that says, okay, you're not going back home to Judea. You're going to live in Galilee. But four revelatory dreams, if you were just presenting uh, the line of the prophetic revelatory uh, uh, idea that came into Joseph's life, uh, that would be your thread line as you follow it through Matthew. But this is the fourth revelatory dream of the chapter, chapter 2, because the first one was to the wise men, and then the three that we will cover this morning, next Lord's Day morning, and the Lord's morning after that, uh, if in fact the Lord tarries, and I'm frankly praying that he does not. But nonetheless, uh, if the Lord tarries, that's, that's our plan. I would remind you of the context here in the second chapter, as the wise men left Herod hanging by God's design making the wicked king livid and allowing for his unholy aggressions to flow unto death, much death, in Bethlehem. But not the death of baby Jesus, for his hour had not yet And so when you and I read of such things in the Bible, we're not just reading of happenstance. We're not just reading of history from a human perspective of this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened, then this happened, and then that happened. No, Uh, we're reading this with the understanding that God is the great orchestrator and the conductor of all affairs human. The record of the family flight to Egypt, number one. The massacre in Bethlehem, number two. The settling of the Lord's earthly family in Nazareth, number three. Are all attached to additional Old Testament prophecies. We may well call these three additional prophecies cited obscure. The prophecy concerning Bethlehem is manifest. It's obvious. But the prophecy concerning Egypt and the prophecy concerning Ramah and the prophecy concerning Nazareth coming out of the Old Testament, one good English word to use concerning those three prophecies would be the word obscure meaning that even the casual as well as the serious reader of the Old Testament would surely miss the full significance of those cited passages without the insights gained in the New Testament gospel accounts. There is a prophetic line that even the prophets of old would have been able to figure out and know of as their understanding of Messiah increased. But then there were things, and we're going to be covering at least three of them in the next three weeks, starting today, that the Old Testament prophets would have had very, very little understanding as to the significance of what they were saying when they said it. And that is indeed something that is fascinating, or should be, for all of us that love the Lord and are responsive to the magnificence of his word. Most Jewish people in the first century perceived Messiah's arrival only in the terms of military conquest and national glory. You've been told that 10,000 times. 
in class after class and sermon after sermon, you have been told that the Jewish expectation in the first century was dedicated uh, to the idea of military conquest over Rome and national glory. The Lord Jesus himself, after resurrection, rebuked the disciples on the road to Emmaus for not better recognizing that according to the scripture, Christ had to suffer and to enter into his glory. You see, it's easy even today to get all frosted up about the glory stuff and miss the Lord's plain, frank, stark speech concerning the way of the cross. And while we are not called to bear his cross, we are called to bear the cross that God has assigned to us. Obediently and with faith, even as our Lord gave his perfect example first advent. Now Matthew worked diligently in this gospel presentation of Christ to introduce to us the themes of hatred and hostility early on. If you want to know what Matthew is up to here in this section of the word of God, one of the things is is that he is introducing to us uh, this element of hatred and hostility right smack dab in connection to the birth of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, I would say it is never right to celebrate Christmas apart from the acknowledgement of the hostility and the hatred of the world towards Christ. If you're going to get all Christmas at Christmas time, fine, but you better recognize the ridiculousness of the hatred and the hostility that was evident even towards baby Jesus, let alone grown-up Christ. That is so important to know. Today we're tackling the most difficult of the Old Testament connections as Matthew cites Hosea 11.1 at verse 15 in reference to messianic prophecy fulfilled. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Hosea, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, said, quote, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. That revelation, as given to Hosea, is clearly a historical remembrance of God's calling and deliverance of the Jewish people under the leadership of Moses. You and I generally refer to it as the Exodus. Israel, as God's son, being called out of Egypt is the single most dramatic and most important event of the Old Testament era concerning congregational Israel. Matthew cites that historical statement of Hosea concerning the Jewish nation of Israel as having anticipatory elements of Christ 
after telling us of God's warning and instruction to Joseph to take the young child Jesus to Egypt. The instruction came, verse 14. The reference to prophecy comes, verse 15. The order is important of the biblical text. Joseph first receives a commission from the angel to take baby Jesus and Mary and go to Egypt And he is given that commission before we have reference to the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea's prophecy that is locked down tight in reference to the nation of Israel and their history of Exodus at a point in time in which the outstanding feature of Israel in Hosea's day was, ready, disobedience. It's not hard to see that there are parallel conditions here and a parallel sense of biblical language when you begin to flip, and we're not doing that yet this morning, and we won't do much this morning, but more next week. But uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, parallel conditions and there's a lot of parallel biblical language, especially between Old Testament Pharaoh oppressing the nation of Israel and New Testament Herod seeking to destroy the Lord's Christ. In other words, there is a contrast that is developing in the underlying emphasis of Scripture as the Spirit of God prompts the heart of Matthew to give it to us. And that underlying contrast lies at this moment between Egyptian Pharaoh and the Edomian or Edomite, king of the Jews, named Herod. Matthew 2.16 tells us of Herod being exceedingly angry and there giving order to kill all the male babies in Bethlehem up to the age of two, as was determined by interaction with the wise men. That's an interesting reference. I I know that uh, all the scholars fascinated about how many uh, uh, people that actually would involve, uh, certainly not thousands. Even when you include Bethlehem and the coast thereof, uh, it would not have involved thousands of children under the age of two. Uh, for the number of people living in that area at that general time, uh, there wouldn't have been enough people living there, and especially women of a, of a baby-producing age, in order to produce thousands of babies to be killed, and, uh, and even hundreds is, uh, is kind of in jeopardy when you think about it and you look at the numbers, when you run the numbers, even hundreds. Uh, now, most of, the, most of the really smart scholars say about 20 babies. And that seems tremendously low to me. I, I, I have a hard time getting my mind around 20 babies. But the point is, the fact is this. It's not the number of babies that was killed. It was the one baby who wasn't. And I want to scream at the commentators and say, would you boys get your minds off how many babies were killed when the Spirit of God doesn't think it's important to tell us? And get your mind where it belongs on the Lord Jesus who was protected of God in this way, not the way you would have done it, not the way I would have done it, not the way any man would have done it, but the way God did it. Stand back in awe. God is at work. Can't you see it? Can't you see that? 
Exodus 1.22 reads, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. As Pharaoh reacted to the news of a thriving Israel within the borders of Egypt with a troubled heart. So Herod reacted with a troubled heart and with murderous intention concerning the born king of the Jews. We begin to understand the reference to Hosea 11.1 by noting the similarity of conditions of reaction between Old Testament Pharaoh and New Testament Herod. Now, knowing what we know, uh, 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 we would say that Pharaoh had no good reason to be fearful of the Jewish nation within his borders. And we would certainly say that Herod had no reason to be fearful of the born son of Christ, the son of God, uh, in the moment in which he was born. And yet, that doesn't matter because both Pharaoh and Herod, in spite of their unbelievable grasp of extrinsic authority, freaked. They were troubled at heart, and so much so that they thought the only way to solve their problem was to abort the baby. When God intervened by way of angelic messenger, telling Joseph to flee to Egypt, there is to be seen a parallel of hateful and hostile conditions. Do you realize that one of the great, great privileges and honors of being a citizen of the United States of America is the long historical run we have had as a nation without much hatred and hostility directed towards the people of Christ. I've tried to be faithful in saying to you, those days are over. You can continue to give your hearts and minds to lesser things if you choose. But the hour is late, and our Lord is coming, and you'd be wise to be ready to meet the Lord. These are days of hate and hostility on the increase for us, and we cannot be surprised if we've actually read the Bible. And so all other preachers are happy to tell you your best life now, and everything's popping up roses. And if you'll just do a little God curtsy, your life will just be snap, crackle, and pop. I can't do it. I can't do it. I won't do it. The Bible doesn't commend that. The Bible commends the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And that is you better ready your soul for days when the one you love is dishonored all around you, including maybe your family. And your neighbors, 
and your friends. And only by the grace of God shall any of us stand tall in the coming hour. But by the grace of God, we shall stand tall. I know you heard me, but I don't know that you heard me. But nonetheless. A quick aside, little tangent at this moment, please. God's communication to protect baby Jesus was directed in a principled fashion to and through the family head, Joseph. The question could be asked, and especially of a Catholic, why Joseph and not Mary? Joseph has no beads. Joseph has no beads. So why Joseph getting the dreams from the angel? The answer is God's ordained creation order for the family. In the terms of one man, one woman, God consistently honors the institutions he ordains. Just think of what this little observation does to the worship of Mary. And those ridiculous paintings of baby Jesus with a halo around his head as if he is an adult locked in a baby body. God directed the Lord's earthly family through its head. The godly man, Joseph. God told Joseph to flee to Egypt. He did not tell Mary he did not tell the precious Lord Jesus baby. He told Joseph the family head. That is significant, beloved. That is the exact truth from God that our world and this generation is just massively, massively opposing everywhere you go. Egypt is the place where Abraham found respite in the day of trouble. Egypt is the place where Jacob found respite in the day of severe drought. Egypt had often been a haven of refuge for the Jews during various periods of biblical history. And at this point, Egypt was God's protective place for the young Messiah. It is interesting to note that in that day, there were over one million Jews already living in Alexandria, Egypt. One of the reasons why we have such confidence in the, uh, in the preservation of the scriptures by the Holy Spirit of God is because God sent a million Jews to Egypt where the greatest libraries of the world were to be had in which many, many ancient copies of the scriptures were preserved in those libraries. And at the time that Jesus was taken by his earthly father, as supposed Joseph, to Egypt, one million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt. If that's where Joe took his family, they would have had a supportive community in which to live until God's word to return, verse 20, as found, and then relocate, verse 22, came to Joseph, the family head. 
Alexandria was about 200 miles from Bethlehem, although we do not know the exact place Joseph took the young family. Let me say one more word. It'll be very convicting to our men. There is absolutely no doubt that the promises of God fall to the life of an individual. There's no doubt that if I live as a man, as an absolute jerk, that Sherry can still know the favor of God upon her life as an individual woman. But there are things that God has ordained for my family that my family will not realize unless my heart is tender to God and I live in obedience to God. And as a man, you may well be preventing your own family from going forward in Christ because you are such a gutless wonder. Stand up! Be a man! And be a man for God! And be done with the kind of Western Michigan garbage that has absolutely gripped the cause of Christ in this area. Be a man of God. Be a man of God. I know you heard me. I don't know that you heard me. God, I said it. Do with it what pleases you. Joseph was a man who obeyed God to the great, 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 great benefit of his whole family. Back to Matthew's dream of record. I call it dream number two in the chapter. Joseph's trip to Egypt, as stated then, verse 15, is a fulfillment of prophecy. We begin to grasp that reality by seeing the parallel between Israel's past deliverance and the promise of Israel's deliverer, both having connection to Egypt under hostile and hateful conditions. How is this prophecy fulfilled? Along the lines of hateful and hostile conditions. It was under hateful and hostile conditions that Israel was delivered of Yahweh. And it is out of hateful and hostile conditions that Messiah is delivered out of Judea into the land of Egypt. Now the second thing, and I'll have to be quick, but the second thing here is that we are helped in connecting Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1 to remember the communication of Hosea's contemporary prophet buddy, Isaiah, concerning God's two servants. Now one of the things that is very interesting when you study the book of Hosea is that you realize that God uh, calls people his servants that you and I would never call servants of God, including in the book of Hosea, I'm sorry, in the book of Isaiah, uh, uh, the secular ru uh, ruler Cyrus is called a servant of God. And uh, that's an interesting thing to work through. But I'm interested in the two servants of God that are constantly put at play against each other in the prophetic testimony of Isaiah. And that has to do with, first and foremost, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, which are clearly addressed in the book of Isaiah as God's servant. For instance, you have it on your bulletin, Isaiah 41.8 says, But thou Israel, 
art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So in that particular case, uh, uh, the nation of Israel is addressed as the servant of Yahweh. Yet, Isaiah also tells us of Israel's failure to serve Yahweh with the loving obedience and integrity that Yahweh demands. So the first thread line of thought is, is that God calls Israel his servant, but Israel was marked in Isaiah's day with failure to serve Yahweh with the loving obedience and integrity that God demands. And so therefore, in the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, the prophet tells us of another servant. And we would, in the English text, capitalize the S. The capital S servant of Isaiah 42.1, where Yahweh says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the nations. In the book of Isaiah, two sons, two servants. Isaiah stresses the disobedience of God's servant Israel. Isaiah emphasizes the obedience of God's servant Messiah. And back in Matthew, we are being told that not only was Messiah obedient to the Father's will perfectly, but uh, Messiah's stepdad was an obedient man in relationship with his family as well. Wow. If you can't apply that to a men's retreat, if you can't speak uh, uh, of that truth at some breakfast when guys eat way too much bacon, well then, you miss the thrust of the biblical text. One more thing I want to show you this morning, and that's the correspondence that is further developed between Israel and Jesus in that both are called in Scripture and a number of different places sons, sons of Yahweh. The record of Pharaoh Exodus 4, 23 reads, again in your bulletin, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. God says he has a relationship with Israel, and the, Israel, and the relationship is father to son. God says he has a relationship with Israel, and the relationship is, is father to son, and Israel is described as firstborn son. And furthermore, the purpose of the firstborn son was to serve the father. Now listen, I could get the kids in my Sunday school class to make these connections. If your mind doesn't go clickety-clack with this stuff, I don't know where you are today, but you aren't here. Because this is very, very easy to make the correspondences that are to be found within the Old Testament biblical text in light of the New Testament declaration. And again, son, firstborn son, with a purpose to serve. How did Israel do? Wah! They miserably failed. And so Matthew would have us meet the son who perfectly 
succeeds. The capital S son, the beloved son, in whom the clouds parted, and the father said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well praised. Matthew 3, coming up soon, but not in the next week or two. Israel is said to be God's son. Jesus is known to be God the Son. And that too informs our understanding of the prophetic connection between Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1. Israel was the son called out of Egypt who proceeded to live after deliverance disobediently. Jesus is the capital S son to be called out of Egypt by the Father who will proceed to live and die in perfect obedience. The prophetic correspondences run along the lines of conditions of hostility and hatred, disobedience and obedience. How does Christ being told to go to Egypt, actually his father, take him there, and then come back from me. How does that fit the Old Testament reference to what God did with the nation of Israel? Well, it has to do with the correspondence between the nation of Israel and the Lord Jesus. Uh, the nation of Israel is clearly stated to be God's son, firstborn son, with a purpose to serve God. And that ended in disobedience. The New Testament is all about God's son, firstborn son who perfectly obeys the will of the Father, even to death on the cross. And as a result of his obedience, he who went down has come up. And God has said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ is God the Son, obedient. And that would be Matthew's point in reference here. So the lines of prophetic correspondence concerning Matthew's first geographical reference to Egypt involves the similarity of hatred and hostility of Old Testament Pharaoh and New Testament Herod, along with the contrast between disobedient servant son Israel and obedient servant son, the Lord Jesus. And I trust that in that you can see for yourself something of the marvel of the orchestration and conducting of God over all things. God who can do anything he wants anytime he wants to had a myriad of possibilities to protect the Lord's Christ, he could have easily sent 10,000 angels. Could he have not? We sing about that in regards to the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone. He died for you, for me. He died according to the will of the Father to save us. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, our Savior. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening the eyes of our understanding and giving us rise to faith in Christ our Lord. Now, I want to call your attention back to verse 13 as we prepare to conclude for this morning. Verse 13 says, And when they, wise men, were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to uh, destroy him. I wrote down next to verse 13 four key words. The words are embrace, escape, Egypt, endure. Again, embrace, escape, Egypt, and endure. The word embrace I get from the instruction of the angel in Joseph's dream, take the young child. Take the young child and his mother. It's interesting to me that the same root word is used to speak of people that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. John 1.12. Here you have the same root word translated take. Joseph took the, the baby and took the mother and embraced them as God instructed him which is not only a picture of Joseph's obedience, but it's a picture of salvation in John chapter 1 and verse 12. And then the word escape. Take the young child and his mother and flee. Flee. Now, most of the time when you, when you are saying to a person, it's time to run, it means that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that the only means of securing safety in the moment is to uh, run away is to run away. Uh, uh, there's a, a propensity, even in the most godless of men, fight or flee. And if a man thinks he can win the fight, he might stay there a while. And if he don't think he can handle the fight, well, then he might flee. But here, Joseph uh, is told to flee. And the thing that I note is that there's no fight in his soul before God. If God would have told Joseph, I want you to go launch an attack with your friends against Herod and take them out, I think that Joseph could have done that if God would have willed that. But that was not God's way. The whole aspect of the first advent is really about the fleeing of Messiah. The whole second advent is about the force of Messiah. We live in between the flea and the force. May that force be with you. Nonetheless, escape. Interesting word. Speaks of the whole plan of God for the first advent. And then the word Egypt, of course, is the place. Egypt, which, strangely, is a place of real trouble. And yet, is also been, at times, a place of real blessing. And interestingly, Egypt, as we learned when we studied the book of Jeremiah, Egypt is a nation that has specific promise from God of restoration and perpetuation. God has a plan for saved Egypt. Did you know that? The prophets foresaw a plan for Egypt of the saved variety. Egypt is the place of hatred and hostility. True, 
But Egypt has also been a place for Abraham, for Jacob. And for a while, the nation of Israel in the whole. And certainly for the Lord Jesus. And for a million Jews living in Alexandria during a troubled day in which Rome ruled over the land of promise. A, a place of, of safety. A place of respite. Egypt. And then I love the word endure. Where that the angel says, and be thou there. And be thou there. And be thou there. Until I bring thee word. Stay put in Egypt until God makes it clear it's time to leave. Oh, that preachers would operate with that principle in regards to pastoral ministries. They would stay longer than a minute if they heard such a thing. But until God makes it clear that it's time to go, you should stay. That's the idea. Joseph, bless his pea picking heart, was a man of endurance. He kept his family well in Egypt until the Lord said, it's time. There's a parallel to our own day in the sense that the Lord, by the Spirit of God, keeps his people well in this world of Egypt until the coming of the Lord, until he brings the next thing to light in the coming day. But the thing, again, I return to and I point your heart towards this morning is Joseph's obedience. Joseph led his family in obedience to God. And that fulfilled, as it were, the intention of the Heavenly Father as evident over the days of human history. How desperate is our modern need for men heading homes after the pattern of Joseph's obedience. It is not enough that a man be individually obedient, but that he lead his family in Christ. Too many families have a dull dad and a heartful mother, and God is grieved with such an imbalance And the difficulties of such an imbalance are just way, way, way too many to cite. There is a better way. It is God's way. Let's walk in it. Father, thank you this morning for a fantastic emphasis of prophecy, Old Testament into the New Testament, fulfillment as we would expect in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But thank you this morning for right alongside with that the testimony once again of Joseph's obedience. Wow, he stands so high in the testimony of the New Testament concerning being the stepdad of our Lord. Not that we would worship him. For we know that in the coming day he will join with us in worshiping you. But oh God, what a blessing. To consider the certainty and the surety of the word of God concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord. May he be glorified in us. And may we take our glory in him today.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.